I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Cullen. I'm going to be the interview host today. And we have, for your edification and entertainment, doctor. Is that right? Doctor or professor? Both both are accurate. Well, we can just go with Greg for brevity's sake. I appreciate the acknowledgement of, uh, of the academic accolades, but Greg will be just fine. Greg, thanks for joining us. Um, we've got a whole bunch of questions. Uh, I'd like to kind of start it off with you just kind of throwing out a little bit of your background and your interest in the revolution. And, and actually I'd preface this whole thing with, if anybody hasn't heard, uh, I don't remember the name of the episode, but the episode you just released about the Hamilton Burr duel, I encourage you strongly to go listen. It Uh, is one of the better podcasts and just more enthralling stories you will find anywhere. It's awesome. Well done. Hey, thank you so much. So uh, as far as the revolution time period goes, what kind of got you into that? I've always been fascinated by the revolution Uh, since I was a kid. um, You know, I think... uh, it comes a bit from family tradition. Uh, I, I have ancestors who fought in the revolution. Uh, my oh, own wow, family really? showed up. Yeah, uh, I, I go back to William Bradford on the Mayflower. So I, I have ancestors who showed up in 1620, uh, you know, <laughs> bounced around in New England for a bit. And then uh, some Irish Scots who went to Pennsylvania and were, you know, know nothing uh in, in terms of, of the present day, not not names anyone would know, but, you know, there, there were low-level soldiers in the revolution. And to be clear, fighting on the right side, you know, we're not talking oh, loyalists. Good, good. Let's, let's be clear Thank on that. God. Thank you. <laughs> that would have ended this conversation. <laughs> right, right there. <laughs> you loyalist bastard. Shot. Exactly. Screw that. Um, <laughs> someone listening right now is like, what the hell, man? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who are these assholes? I have loyalist blood. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, you know, so, I mean, there, there's that connection. Then, of course, I've, I've just always loved history. And, uh, you know, when I launched uh, my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck, um, that to me was the natural starting point. Um, and, you know, we've just kind of kept going from there. But in, in many ways, I'm kind of sad to be exiting the revolutionary era because I enjoyed so much. Well, it definitely comes through. I mean, the passion that you have for it is very strong, especially particular characters. And uh, your your love for Alexander Hamilton, it, it just comes through really clearly in that last episode. But throughout the story of Alexander Hamilton, um, your passion seems to be pretty, uh, pretty high for him. I wonder a little bit uh, what your thoughts are on... George Washington as the figurehead of the revolution and, and the, the main kind of, uh, 
the the person that everybody kind of looks to and associates with the founding fathers and and the success of the revolution. Do you think that there was maybe another person or character that we are a little uh, we're a little less aware of that might have been able to fill those shoes, or was that a a very particular job that only one person could have filled? Man, let me answer that two ways. The professional historian that I am has been trained and you know taught to think about large events as really not embracing what we call the great man theory, which is where we say that you know the world changed because of one dude being awesome. That said, George was one dude who was really awesome. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it, it's hard to, uh, of course, we can never quite say whether or not the revolution would have been lost without George. But I think that it's pretty evident as we look at other characters who aspired to fill his position uh, that they couldn't hack it. They didn't have the chops. All of, all of his would-be uh, successors who wanted to knock him off from being king of the hill they ultimately biffed it. You know, they failed on the battlefield in, in a really uh, embarrassing sort of way, uh, in a way that they couldn't inspire the, the troops. So you certainly had more brilliant tacticians. Um, Charles Lee comes to mind, who's kind of George's right-hand man out the gate initially. Uh, we're going to talk about Horatio Gates here today. He's another solid contender. Um this fellow named uh, uh, Th uh, Thomas Conway, an Irish guy. Well, Irish, French, uh, Irish born, raised in France. We'll just call him European. Um, <laughs> um, well, you, you know, all, all of these guys, well, George certainly thought Thomas was a bastard. We'll just throw that out there right now. But, um, you, you know, <laughs> all of these guys, I, I think it would be fair to say, if not just flat out accurate to say, that they had a better military background than George. Um, the thing, and I know that this is, uh, this kind of gets into the stuff of legend, but no one inspired troops like George did. And that really does matter. You, you can't just be brilliant on the battlefield. If the troops don't believe in you, when they stop believing in Congress that just keeps breaking its promises, when they stop believing in, uh, you know, it, it, the, the the states to support them. They, they can't even get shoes. I mean, this stuff isn't made up, you know. Um, we, we talk about this sort of stuff, and I think some people sort of roll their eyes at, at times and and think that it's been um, stretched, and certainly some things have been stretched, but the idea that the average continental soldier was living without pay, sometimes without shirts, these are guys marching into battle, you know, literally underclothed, only uh, only George Washington was able to inspire these guys to say, yeah, this is worth it. I should keep doing this. Hmm. So that, that's actually really interesting. And it kind of blends into the battle that we're talking about today, the battle of Saratoga with the victory at Saratoga, we're able to, or the uh, continental army and, and the, the fledgling U S Congress is able to get support from foreign nations and that support initially comes in the form of money and supplies. So they get some money so that they're able to pay their their soldiers and pay uh, suppliers. 
if they didn't or they weren't able to get that uh, line of credit or that money as quickly as they were able to after Saratoga, uh, where do you see the Continental Army, say, eight months out from Saratoga? Honestly, eight months out, I see it dead. I see the revolution over. Really? If Saratoga had been lost, oh, yeah. I, I think it was that important. Um, I mean, of course, could I be wrong? Yeah, sure. Again, we, we, we can't see how the world would have gone in that other dimension. But I really think um, huh, maybe it's still eking along, but it, I think the revolution at least would have been lost. It's, only, it's not a question of if, but only when. So because it, the, the French aid was that important and we don't get it without the victory at Saratoga. Sorry, I'm talking. No, no, you. no, Go that's ahead. fine. I guess. So my, I guess what you're kind of drawing forward is it becomes instead of a revolution, it just becomes a rebellion. Uh, not, yeah. Does, uh, it doesn't and, quite have the, the weight and the impetus and grandeur of a revolution. It's more of just kind of an armed uprising. Yeah, I think it would have sizzled into a failed rebellion. There would at some point be some negotiations, you know, to save the skin of probably some B-list leaders um, and maybe commute some A-listers who are willing to sell out the fastest. Uh, George Washington would have been screwed, no question, as the, the face of the United States. I I just don't see any alternative other than execution for him. Mm. And, you know, probably the same for a number of the other people that you know uh 21st century americans can actually name yeah um that's interesting so i i guess my question would be how much did so we know we have kind of an idea of how important this battle was if we go backwards how important did the british and uh continental forces see it at the time like before there was actually firing on the field did the british see this the high command over in england and uh, the british on the field i believe it was uh, general burgoyne did they see this as kind of a monumental uh, moment in the struggle did they actually foresee the importance of this battle or was it just kind of another engagement you know it's kind of a, a yes, they did, and at the same time, they, they didn't situation. Let, let me explain that more fully, though, starting with the British. The British are absolutely convinced that they're going to win. So, I mean, that's one thing we, ha we have to keep in mind. It doesn't even occur to them, really, that they're going to lose the Saratoga campaign. So, you know, first of all, we have General Burgoyne, or as I love to call him, uh, as you might recall from my coverage of this battle, um, gentleman Johnny. It's his nickname. It's a badass nickname. It, I, I got to roll. It's with it. straight from TMZ. I mean, you could not print a better <laughs> nickname today, right? And you know the thing I love about kind of uh, focusing in on small things like that. When we talk about General Burgoyne, and of course, there's no problem with you know using his his proper name and title and whatnot. He kind of disappears into the into the annals of history. He just turns into another dry name that. Oh yeah. Um, you know, that students are passing their eyes over and thinking, you know, dear God, when does this class end? But when it's gentleman Johnny, you know, you, you kind of have to pause and think, who is this guy? What, what? Oh, fully. I what, mean, what is this? Uh, my, my millennial brain would instantly go to like Johnny football. Like 
this guy is yeah. he's a, a flamboyant. He's got to be like the the hottest guy going. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th- th- this guy, you know, he, he's he's a playwright. He's a ladies man. Just, you now, know, when you say ladies man, was, was he a actually ladies man. a ladies man? Was he, you know, was the deed getting done or was he just kind of like courting ladies and handing out tissues and whatnot? No, no, no. The, the I mean, the deed, if it wasn't getting done, then, um, you know, there were some ladies who certainly wanted to make it sound like it was at the very least. Oh, okay. And so knowing the era, I'm telling <laughs> you, it's, it's happening. You know, this isn't, this isn't a world of, 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 of pretending on those sorts of things. If anything, you try to, you know, pretend the other way, you're trying to cover up your adulterous or fornicating ways. Um, so he's like, a, sorry, uh, I hope that's not too strong. He's a bit of, <laughs> bit of a Lothario and, uh, an interesting character. Go. That's that's the oh yeah discreet way of putting it, I guess. Yeah, this is a man living life to the max. Yes, you know whether that's on the battlefield, the bedroom, or you know the um, out on his social life. Um, this is not a man who went to his deathbed uh, having uh, stayed inside too often, <laughs> unless of course you mean the bedroom uh, uh, again. There you go. So now now that we've beaten up on that. Um, you know, he goes to King George III. He, he's on leave during the, the winter of 1776, where, you know, George Washington's really getting, just getting his face handed to him, um, other than the Battle of Trenton, for the most part. Um, and he goes to King George III, this is Gentleman Johnny, you know, and basically says, look, I have this sweet plan. I'm going to divide and conquer. You know, I'll take about 8,000 troops from Canada. I'm going to descend down. Uh, Lake Champlain and the, and the Hudson River. Um, I'm going to have a Lieutenant Colonel St. Ledger cut across the Mohawk Valley. Uh, there's a river there that kind of cuts uh, east-west through um, upstate New York. He'll come that way. And then, and this is this is a linchpin, you know, uh, gentleman Johnny wants um, forces, um, uh, British forces that are already in America to come up the Hudson River. And so in this way, they're all going to meet up around what would probably be Albany, New York. And, you know, he, to be fair to him, he's, he kind of said, you know, uh, calling the shots on how things are going to look on the ground in, you know, more than half a year from now, that's kind of hard to say. But if the three armies can cut like that, you know, you're going to cut uh, the rebellion basically in half. You know, Massachusetts, New York, they're severed. And from there, they just figure everything will sizzle out. So, you know, King George III, he's ecstatic. He approves this. Uh, the uh, Secretary of the Colonies, he approves it. And, you know, off we go. Um, so so Burgoyne's plan would be something that, like, um, uh, like a, a Heinz Guderian or, or somebody, like, it, it's basically a giant pincer move from two different directions. Absolutely. In, in a, yep. basically a strategic encirclement of the, the hottest part of the rebellion and if you can just kind of circle that off and exclude it you've 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 kind of won the won the day essentially precisely okay precisely and so you know you know to get back to your question you know about whether they saw this as being such an important battle well the british did see this as them winning the war so they saw it as important the thing i don't think they really gave much consideration to was what if they actually managed to lose to this ragtag joke of an army as they saw it. Oh, that's a good way of looking at it. That's, that's interesting because 
I, my my question right after you said that was to to basically ask, well, if they thought it was that important, it seems like they didn't really uh, give it as much material and men um, and kind of consider it. Uh, they just well. basically didn't give it the, the time of day for it to actually succeed. So I completely get where you're coming from um, because you'd think that they'd really swamp, you know, the Americans with more men. The real issue, though, is that as, for as good as Gentleman Johnny might be on the battlefield, the man let his ego get to him. I mean, this is the this is the campaign of egos, really, on both sides. Huge American and British egos, but it bit uh, Burgoyne, Gentleman Johnny far harder in the butt than it bit the Americans. Um, you know, to, to start, he, uh, he does assume command. He kind of uh, bumps out of the way other people who maybe were more qualified than him. Um, he then refuses to listen to solid advice coming from, you know, officers that are serving underneath him. Uh, you know, one, one of his biggest mistakes happens at uh, Skeensboro, um, this is after he's taken uh, Fort Ticonderoga. And if you're not familiar with Fort Ticonderoga, let, let me just uh, clarify real quick. This is in upstate New York. Um, and th this is a fort that was taken by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen. And, and the um, Okay, yep. Uh, you, 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 this is clicking in with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are uh, uh, so th the guns came. Uh, uh, I think it was Henry yes. Knox took took the guns from it and moved down to uh, Breed's Hill. Yes. The, the So the guns from Fort Ticonderoga, exactly. Those are what uh, Henry Knox under George Washington, you know, uses uh, to basically chase. Well, George gets the credit. He, he commands it. But Henry Knox, those are his guns. Yeah. Basically. OK, gotcha. They become his baby. Um, and that's how they chase the British out of Boston. Yes, so yes, th yes, this yes. is an important it's an important fort, not just in its physical uh you know, strategic location, but psychologically, emotionally, this is a this is a first victory for you know the ragtag Americans. So, and real quick you know, before you go on, just so northern New York, that whole area, the Great Lakes, they're like sprinkled with uh, British and French forces from the last hundred or so years, right? Um, you do have, uh, yes, I mean. You know, we're, we're getting up into Canada, so sure, the British and French have thrown down there. Um, what you really have more of, though, I'd say, uh, are the uh, the Iroquois. Okay. Uh, th this is their home turf, and they haven't been chased off yet. That's going to happen during the Revolution. Um, and, in fact, they make a large part of Gentleman Johnny's forces. Now, is, that, know, the, is that a benefit to—I'm just—I'm not really sure. Is he, Does he benefit from having— a large native group or is that kind of a liability well <laughs> for him it proved to be a liability now you know it, first off to, to be fair to uh, to the Indians you know we need to remember that each tribe sees itself as very much a separate tribe I, I think today we falsely kind of lump it all American Indians together and think that they somehow were a cohesive group. Um, more of that does start to happen later as they feel the need to band together in order to have any sort of chance against ex uh, Western expansion from the United States. 
But at this point, that hasn't happened. So it's a very realpolitik decision by each tribe as to whether they throw in with uh, the Americans or whether they throw in with the British. It's just about what's best for the tribe, period. You know? So you do have a handful of Iroquois, a very small few, that throw in with the Americans. Most go with the British because, you know, they figure uh, that if the British win, that's going to hold back uh, American expansion more than if the Americans win. So they have good motive. I mean, there's reason why Gentleman Johnny trusted them. But um, there, there are two things that kind of rip them apart in, in terms of being a benefit. Uh, the first is when you know, one of these uh, Indian braves murders a local colonial woman. And Gentleman Johnny's stuck in kind of a catch-22. He doesn't dare prosecute the Indian brave. Because if he does that, he's going to piss off the 500 or so other Braves that are serving under him, and they might just cut and bail. So doesn't want to do that, but he's going to lose you know, the local population. And so in the end, he doesn't prosecute, and the, uh, the Americans, or you know, to be a little bit clear, I'll say the Patriots, effectively use this as propaganda. You know, they, um, they publish this loud and, and, and abroad. Uh, so that everyone knows the British let, uh, you know, a, a British subject slash American get killed by an Indian brave and they did not pursue justice. So, so this turns loyalists, you know, some loyalists over to the American side. The, the woman in question, was she killed or was she scalped? Because I had read, is it Jane McCrae? I think. Uh, yes. Okay. So she was, she yeah. was actually killed. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. She was uh, her her body was found. I got you, got you. butt naked. I had just I had gotten yeah. two different sources that were saying uh, one had said she was murdered, and then the other one said she was only scalped, and that the 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 claim that she was murdered was actually propaganda by the the rebellious groups. Um, so I didn't. I just didn't know which one was which. So he has. Well, hey, uh, if 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 I've somehow got sources crossed, you know, I I apologize. I don't walk on water, but oh, no, my no, uh, no. my understanding from the sources I've seen, yeah, no, 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 is I that totally, she was indeed murdered. I totally take you uh, at your word. I just, you know how it is with these <laughs> both sides. Oh no, people, no, no, absolutely, especially revisionist absolutely. kind of stuff. You never know what the hell they're saying. Um, so we no are, kidding. <laughs> Burgoyne has this tricky situation with the natives. Is it yes? worth the trouble do you think that it was one of those situations where maybe he should just cut bait and and let them be or was he compelled did he have to keep the natives on as allies well i think i think it was worth the trouble because if he's not courting them the then the americans would have so you know, the last thing you want is uh, for the for the Indians. If if you're Johnny Burgoyne, the last thing you want is for the Indians to not only not join you, but to join the other side. Gotcha. Right. Yep. So it's certainly worth his his time now. You know, playing um, armchair general in 2020 hindsight, which of course are all advantages that uh, gentleman Johnny doesn't have. Well, the dude should have brought more regulars he should have relied on on more troops that he could actually command not you know uh allied indian braves who at the end of the day he can't court-martial he can't force them to stay hmm. and do you think part of it is he's relying so heavily on 
Uh, who's the general coming from the south? Was it Howe or? Uh, it's supposed to be Howe. So, yeah, and he, sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I was just wondering, so Howe's supposed to be taking New York or, or he's supposed to be doing something down there that eventually will lead him up north to meet up. Well, yeah, this is all miscommunication. Th this is the biggest miscommunication, in my opinion. Um, I mean, I, I think there are a few other points some historians might point to and could be out to decent argument. But I think there's no greater miscommunication in the British uh, war effort, the entire Revolutionary War, than the Saratoga campaign. Hmm. Because L London gives the okay to, to General Manjani. They send word of this, uh, you know, of this campaign to General Howe, who is in New York. He's the victor. He just kicked the crap out of George Washington. You know, and there he is enjoying his sweet winter, um, sleeping with, uh, with Elizabeth, a married mm -hmm. woman, with her <laughs> husband's consent. Yep. <laughs> so uh, he's, a, he's an interesting character, too. And, you know, he basically writes back and says, okay, that's cool and all, but by the way, I'm going to go uh, sack Philly, you know, come summer, uh, or at least that's one of the things I'm considering. Um, basically he says, I'm not committing to being a part of this, but you know, I'm happy to, to, um, to play along if, if I have nothing better going. And part of this again is egos because how is the commander, you know, he's the commander in chief of British forces there. So the last thing he wants is to have, you know, gentleman Johnny basically calling the shots over him. Mm. So I, I think in a way, in order to maintain his own leadership and his ego, he kind of can't really say, Oh yeah, I'm down. You know, I'm I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with this plan. Um, meanwhile, London basically reads his you know I'll, I'll do it if I can as him saying Oh yeah, absolutely, you got it. I'll be there, King. <laughs> That's a problem. So you know, come summer, the whole time that gentleman Johnny's descending down the state of New York, how who by the way the dude is brilliant on the battlefield, but the man loves to take his sweet time you know he loves the pleasures of life as i guess we just demonstrated um and he loves to move quickly once he's on the battlefield he really snaps into it but until then meh, he's more the tortoise than the hare so he kind of disappears actually he, he takes his ships in a massive armada well over 200 ships um down uh, to to kind of drop in uh in uh off the top of my head, I want to say it was Maryland. I, yeah, I could be I off, think, but it's in that general area, I, Chesapeake yeah, area. Yeah, I think they go around, and then they actually disembark in the northern part of the Chesapeake Bay. So he's... We're, we're both thinking that? Yeah, It's probably yeah, right. I think that, for some <laughs> but reason, we'll go ahead and leave it right. mildly vague. Because what he was doing, he couldn't uh, find somebody to to embark his army. Every uh, the, the Royal Navy, just nobody had orders to help him. And so finally he right. had his brother show up and his brother took him along and they, they went on this weird, pointless, circuitous 200 <laughs> mile, uh, you know, sailing. I know trip. it was the Howe brothers, uh, most excellent adventure. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, <laughs> to know, yeah, to know, I don't know it, what it achieves nothing. <laughs> and so, you know, by the time he does pull in and then he, he, he kind of does the dance with, uh, with George Washington's troops and he does sack Philly. I mean, he has a successful summer, but he's sacking Philly about the same time that Gentleman Johnny is losing the entire campaign. You know, this is the 18th century. You don't just 
hop on a plane and, and get up there, it's literally impossible for him to send reinforcements or to play a role. Um, you know, I, I have no doubt he didn't intend to do that. Obviously, he wanted Britain to win. I think he was, he was more of a British patriot than that. But the lack of communication and the egos on both of their parts, you know, uh, Gentleman Johnny uh, not wanting to defer to Howe, uh, honestly, I think very purposely wanting to kind of upstage him, uh, hoping to set himself up to, you know, maybe I'm very much speculating here. I don't have sources to go off of. I'm, I'm reading his personality type and the way he's treated other people here as I as I make this assertion. But I could see Gentleman Johnny wanting to, uh, you know, get himself a promotion, if not all the way to the top uh, in terms of command in uh, in British North America. Um and, you know, uh, when, when, when you're the king, if you want to stay the king, you, you can't really stand for, for, for people like that. So, you know, Howe played it very cool and kept his distance. And it resulted in Howe taking Philly while Gentleman Johnny gets routed and his entire army. I mean, thousand, it was well over 5,000. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but over 5,000 British soldiers you know, taken captive, locked up in Massachusetts and Virginia um, for the indefinite future. So I guess uh, based on that information, I wonder how much of Burgoyne's kind of dithering, his choice to take the the land route, his choice to kind of um, almost seemingly take his time, was informed by the fact that he maybe thought that there would be somebody meeting him halfway. Uh, I do think, yeah, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you off. No, 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 that's, that's my question is, did, does he maybe think that he doesn't have to make it all the way down to New York, that somebody's coming to meet him and therefore he can kind of take his time and slog through? Yes, I mean, he, he definitely thinks, one, someone is coming to meet him. Uh, two, I don't know if he thinks he can just, you know, take his, his sweet time completely. Uh, he, I, I, more, I guess I tone it back to just a lack of urgency. Okay. Yeah. And, and part, and partly because you know we talked about Fort Ticonderoga a little bit earlier. He's seen these early victories, and I, I think he's foolishly conflating, you know, knocking off uh, an American fort that really wasn't all that fortified at the time, with uh, you know how this is going to go throughout the rest of the campaign, when. You know, and the same thing happens back in the UK. You know, I guess maybe just finish up some thoughts on uh, Ticonderoga. You know, King George the Third triumphantly tells his wife Charlotte that I have beat them. I have beat the Americans. Those are his words verbatim. He really thinks that the revolution is over and won because Fort Ticonderoga gets taken. Really, that is. Yeah. He genuinely thinks it's all lock, stock, and barrel. Oh, it's shit. done. I love that kind of stuff. Like, that is so uh, – it, it's one of those right? things, like, it's that weird moment when one of the most powerful people on the planet has such a terrible read on the actual <laughs> – like, the actuality of the uh-huh. – of the or the reality of the situation that it's just – it's, like, fucking – it's insane to me that somebody like that could be in charge. <laughs> Or just had right. so little yeah. knowledge of uh, the situation on the ground. Although you can't really blame him. I mean, you said it a minute ago. It's, you know, it's 1770s, 1780s. Like, <laughs> he doesn't have Google Earth. He can't, like, look at it and say, oh, yeah, for sure, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Well, you know, I'm sure if we try to put ourselves in King George's shoes for a second, he knows the name Fort Ticonderoga because, you know, it's it's one of the first places that, um, you know, <clears throat> his army got terribly embarrassed in this whole, you know, initially civil war turning into a revolution uh, conflict. That is the Revolutionary War. Um, so I, I'm sure it kind of sticks in his head more than yeah uh, than it really should have. Um, and, uh, and, and I think gentleman Johnny, similarly, he's just thinking like, man, I just waltzed all over that fort. Well, I guess that's how New York is. Ah, the poor sucker. <laughs> he had no clue what was coming his way. Oh uh, God. It's know? almost, you know, it's, it's one of those stories where you almost feel bad for him because like, you kind of, you know, do. he's got the right idea. His plan should work. He isn't wrong. Like the British Army at this time is, is one of the most professional and efficient on the planet. They're facing a, you know, they're taking on a, a bunch of rabble. Like he, he's not wrong yeah. in how he looks at it, but the outcome is just so opposite of anything that he probably even could have possibly fathomed that uh, you, you got to have a little bit of pity for the guy. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't think that Gentleman Johnny for a second ever saw a scenario in which he lost. No, he, Period. he I, cannot have had that. Not for a second. I mean, yeah, not, not until the, the very end, at least, you know, um, I mean, because even as he goes, right, so he takes this land route because he's apparently, you know, a global schmuck and at Skeensboro, you know, is told by a loyalist, oh, you should totally take the land route. And, you know, this is actually just a, a real estate investor who's loving that the army's now going to just carve a, a sweet road for him. Again, um, one of those factoids real that, uh, uh, from your, your <laughs> podcast history that doesn't suck that I absolutely love. That kind of little detail is just so... <laughs> it's so rich, well, and it also shows you, that no matter the time period, no matter the situation... There's somebody always on the con. Like there's somebody always trying oh, right? to yeah, turn yeah. a buck and you know cut a corner wherever they can. <laughs> it's so true. You know? Yeah, I mean people are people. Work smarter, um, not and... harder. That's right. And for that guy, working smarter was letting gentleman Johnny pave the road. Um, yeah, and you know the Americans who who know the turf, you know they just. They throw hazards in the way, you know, fell trees very intentionally and very difficult uh, to move places. Slows gentleman Johnny down. Supplies are running out. So how difficult Indians are bailing could on these them. trees be? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, a birch tree in the way is six guys on either side cut it with a, an axe. Like, are we talking really de uh, destructive or what, what kind of delaying action could this actually have been? Well, I'll uh, I'll tell you frankly, I haven't had the pleasure of going there physically myself yet to lay my eyes you know, <laughs> on this region. But as I've read the primary sources, uh, you know, they're at, at times they're talking about trees that hold up the entire army wow. for moving the entire day. So wow. I think the technical term is probably big ass trees. <laughs> is that yes? I'm. I, is that I'm fair? I doubt that any botanist on the planet will have a problem with that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. I think we roll with that. <laughs> so, yeah. so it holds him up. He's starting to run out of supplies. <laughs> While we've got Johnny on the run or on the march, according to him, who 
who right. is leading the uh, continental forces? We've talked a little bit about Gates. Uh, I know that there's mm-hmm. a, a guy named Morgan and, and, you know, the pretty infamous Arnold in there somewhere. W- who are these guys yep. and, like, w- what kind of uh, power do they actually hold? Well, we, again, we have egos at play here because w- they're toppling one, each, one another. Uh, I believe the expression lobsters in a bucket you know, <laughs> kind of comes to mind. That's perfect. Um, I love that. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, I thought you might appreciate yes, that sir. one. Um, so first off, we have uh, General Schuyler. This is the future father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton. He has command, but he doesn't really click with the very, you know, commoner New England crowd that mostly compose of the soldiers under his command. He's a, you know, he's he's down with the revolution and all, but the guy comes from money. And he, unlike George Washington, who does come from the gentry class, you know, George George has a, a well-off background, not as well as many tend to think at times, but nonetheless, you know, he, he's more comfortable than... Uh, than your typical farmer. Uh, but George knows how to, you know, transcend it. The, the, the troops see him as one of, one of them. Schuyler doesn't have that skill. So they kind of don't dig him as much. But Horatio Gates, ah, he does have that skill. They start really liking him, and it's under Schuyler that Fort, Fort Ticonderoga is lost. And so Horatio Gates is basically able to f- politically maneuver to get Schuyler bumped and to get himself put in command of the Continental Forces in the North. So we have that leadership change. Now, under Gates, uh, Horatio Gates, uh, we have the infamous Benedict Arnold. And at first, the two get on okay, but both of these guys, I mean, this gets to, you know, not that we're going to get into to this uh, on, on this episode, but uh, Benedict Arnold, who is a brilliant uh, general, brave the dude has an ego you know that's it's only rivaled by um the slow pace at which uh gentleman johnny moves through new york um you know (laughs) arnold has a, a really big fan and that's who he sees in the mirror whenever he has a chance to look at one of those um so the these two you, you know, you, you can see the problem, right? I mean, obviously, he and his commander, Horatio Gates, these are two massively ambitious dudes. And the fact that Benedict is actually on okay terms with Schuyler and, in fact, takes some officers who are kind of BFF with Schuyler, uh, that that puts him on even, you know, th- that starts the riff. Um, and from there, things just really unravel. Uh, Horatio is sending reports to Congress, Um and, you know, let's just pause right there for a second and point out he's sending his reports to Congress rather than to George Washington. That's who he should be sending them to. Uh, so that, again, tells you kind of Horatio. He, he This is a man always angling to move up. Uh, he purposely leaves out Benedict Arnold's, uh, you know, the man's going to be a traitor, but we got to give him credit where credit's due. He, he is putting it out there on the battlefield. I mean, he is valor-defined. So he's livid as it, as it becomes apparent that he's just totally getting blown off in all the reports. Um, Daniel Morgan, you mentioned. Uh, Daniel, you know, he's got to be one of the most underrated, in my opinion, uh, leaders in the, in, in the Continental Army. Um, 
or rather I, I should just say uh, American forces. He kind of bounces in and out of the war. Um, yeah, he, he retires his, his, at, at one point after the Battle of Saratoga, right? He, he kind of yes. hangs up his jersey on the left field wall and calls it a day. And then I, I'm pretty sure they actually uh, they like bring him back at some point. Yeah, yeah, he jumps back into into the fray uh, later when uh, the Southern campaign gets going, and uh, he's right there with Nathaniel Green as they lead Lord Cornwallis on, you know, a, a wild goose chase across like three different states. It's it's incredible, and here's where you know we're, we're talking about Daniel Morgan at Saratoga, but honestly, my respect for him comes from that Southern campaign. The dude had severe sciatica during all this massive marching. Hmm. I mean, he had days he could barely walk. He's like draped over horses, you know, at night, desperately trying to massage out things. Had days he couldn't even move. That's, uh, respect is the only word that comes to mind for me. You know? (laughs) I mean, I complain because I've got like a, you know, I slept funny and my back is out, but Jesus Christ, (laughs) I can't imagine. Right. So uh, um, I guess my my next question would be kind of uh, we know the players, we know the the importance, the battle itself. How does it kind of uh, you know the the two forces meet? Um, I think it's near Bemis or Bemis Heights, mm-hmm. and yep. the Americans yep. kind of dig in and set up their camp. Um, are they reaching this position before or after? the the british have arrived well the the british are pretty well entrenched Uh, they've been able to build um or at least at freeman's farm and you know we talk about the battles of uh of saratoga so you know we've kind of discussed the the saratoga campaign now we're talking about the battles of this of saratoga which are often then divided into two separate battles themselves the first one at freeman's farm and then bemis heights which is you know it's like a stone's throw away to use that expression um, when we don't remember the exact number off the top of our head, but it's really close. You, you know, you, you can d- definitely think of these two engagements as as really one battle separated by a number of days. Okay. Uh, so, the, so the redoubts are closer to Freeman's farm, and uh, so we have a, a throwdown there in late September. I want to say it's September seventeenth, if memory serving correctly. Um, the only reason I'm doubting that a little bit is that's also the date of the Constitution being signed and. Yeah, just a big day. Screw it. It sounds anyhow, like a, yeah, it sounds um, good to me. It is. It's also my mom's birthday. Oh, there you go. So, then it's the best you know, day ever. So yeah. we'll go with it. <laughs> right? Crushed it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, you know the, the British have these uh, have these redoubts, and uh, real quick, let me just you know, I, get I in it, here and and what exactly when you say redoubt, what is that? Is that uh, a, a bunch oh, of yeah. like an earthen palisade with uh, palisade with? Um, you know, uh, bags of cotton, or is it actually like a firing position with cannons? What, what are we talking about? Earthen palisade. You nailed it. Um, usually, at least three sides to it. Um, there, there can be cannon in it. Uh, a redoubt isn't necessarily defined by the armaments that it has. It's, it's the actual defensive structure itself. So, so the goal is to basically create fields of fire. And uh, a, a safer firing position for the infantry that you have. Is that exactly, exactly? Um, and I do believe. I mean, I know 
gentleman Johnny was dragging a ton of cannon, you know, down with him um, at um, um, just just prior to this, uh, to the Battle of, of Saratoga. Uh, another smaller detachment of gentleman Johnny's was captured by uh, by John Stark, and and he took eight cannon in that engagement alone. So I would imagine um, that that they probably had cannon here as well. Okay. Um, I, I'm just not remembering right off the top of my head. But at any rate, uh, I think we do need to point out that the Americans already have the battle. I mean, at this point, all of gentleman Johnny's uh, you know lower officers are begging him. They've been begging him for days to uh, either go ahead and surrender and, you know, let's let's try and negotiate our way out of this now because we're already screwed. So we'll be less screwed the better our position is when we start the negotiations. Or, you know, let's hightail it. It's time to get out of here, back to Canada. Gentleman Johnny, who can't fathom the idea that he's going to lose, he's going to blow his reputation, you know, and all that jazz, refuses to do it and just keeps pushing through. So by the time we're at this battle, man, um, he, he's toast. I think uh, uh, I, I think uh, in a, an American in a wet paper bag, you know, probably could have led the <laughs> army, and it it had taken longer. But you know, my uh, my nine year old would probably have handled it just fine. So uh, essentially, th- I mean, at this point, he's like kind of like uh, he's that asshole in Monopoly who has no money left but a bunch of properties and just keeps mortgaging <laughs> shit and mortgaging shit and won't yeah. just quit the game. Yeah, and you're like, dude, this isn't even fun so anymore. So it takes like, four hours longer than it should have, but eventually ends up tossing the board. Yeah, yeah, he is that guy. Okay. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and Yeah, right? I mean, think about everything we've described Again, about the, him. the it, word it, you've it used over and over up. is ego here. Absolutely. And again, it's on both sides. Um, Horatio, you know, the day will be his. Uh, whether or not he completely realizes that or not, you know, it's, it's easy enough to see in hindsight. And he's very cautious in, in terms of, you know, how he conducts himself on the battlefield. Whereas Benedict Arnold, he is, uh, if anything, he might be a little bit too far the other way, you know, more on the reckless side. And what do you mean by that? So, What's like an example of him being reckless? this battle i mean at freeman's farm first of all horatio so pissed at him at this point uh he's he's told him he's not allowed on the battlefield you know you're you're done you're not under my command i mm. i bid you good day that sort of a thing jesus um yeah is it, so what is her <laughs> what does benedict do well about you know the battle gets going around uh 2 2 30 in the afternoon Horatio kind of gingerly doesn't really want to push it and try and take these redoubts, though. You know, he has the numbers, but he's just playing it safe. Benedict comes riding out on the field like a badass and, you know, basically just says, hey, everybody, you know, follow me. Um, So he goes full Braveheart. Oh, yeah, completely. (laughs) Charges right up to one of the redoubts, um, you know, attacked. And how he doesn't get hit, I mean, it's utterly beyond me. You know, statistically, he should have been shot countless times. It's so weird to but me. But he, he doesn't. How often that is where you have this, like, one historical figure, like Wellington at Waterloo has, like, seven horses shot out from underneath him, doesn't affect him at all. And then 
You have like one general in the Civil War who says, uh, the, the, the bullet that kills me hasn't been made yet, and sticks his head up for a second and gets his head blown off. Like, it's just weird how that happens. Right. You know, the, the important people seem to be fairly well taken care of. Well, you know, we might argue they're only important because they were lucky enough to live <laughs> to tell the tale. Yeah, that's huh? a good point. Maybe, maybe that's how it went. Um, so, you know, the first redoubt's not working out for him. So then he just charges between the two redoubts. And it's like the British, you know, just didn't even think that someone would be that reckless. And truthfully, that's, <laughs> I kind of actually love this about the American Revolution. Half of the most awesome battlefield stories are about the Americans, often George Washington, in fact, doing things that the British didn't even think to defend, not because the idea wouldn't occur to them that someone could physically do it, but they're thinking no one is that stupid. <laughs> Who on earth would actually do such a thing? I think, and you know that that's that's a funny thing about uh, you see it at uh, Bastogne. You have, um, I think it was uh, Lieutenant Spears, or, or I forget exactly who, but he runs from one end of a village, you know, down the main street in between, you know, two companies of German soldiers. And they're so awestruck by how, like, insane and, and incredibly dangerous and stupid <laughs> this is that he's able to stop at the end of the road to del deliver the message he's trying to deliver and then run back. And not get shot right. and killed. <laughs> it's just—it's—it's it's a weird yeah, American. Yeah, they're just dumbstruck. Uh, yeah, gobstock is is the correct word, I think. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's exactly what happens here, you know. So Benedict just goes charging through. Now he does get injured severely at this point. Uh, his his horse gets shot, his leg gets shot, and then when his horse falls, it lands on his shot leg. Huh. So that leg is effed. I mean, he has a limp the rest of his life. It takes him the better part of, jeez, uh, I, I want to say it was seven or eight months, uh, roughly half a year to really even get to where he's able to walk pretty decently again. Interesting that they didn't uh, amputate it. Well, I mean, that would have been you the go-to move, right? Just, uh, oh, shit, that thing's mangled. Let's get rid of it. Oh, sure. Sure, and you know, I, I, I don't know all the details uh, on that. I'm sure there's probably some historian out there who wrote, you know, <laughs> his or her dissertation on Benedict Without Arnold's leg doubt. and the medical treatment. Without doubt, right? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, he he comes out of this. You know, he's a maimed hero of the the revolution essentially. But Horatio Gates, who hates him, does his best to kind of bury it. Hmm. Um, so he's got a lot of fans on the battlefield, but he never gets what, at least what he thinks is his proper due. And this is all part of what starts to, you know, beyond the festering of the wound, it's the festering of his soul that's going to eventually mature, you know, with other perceived injuries into his betraying America. And so if it starts here and he's starting to, you know, fuel that little flame and just kind of give himself the the little permissions to start to think badly of of the revolution how i i guess i wonder it it, it seems like he was a, a hugely important figure in the most important battle of the revolution or may you know arguably the most important battle of the revolution 
did he not have enough built up goodwill to kind of, you know, uh, I, I guess once once the plot is revealed and and it just seems like we've reviled him ever since. Like, uh, it just seems strange that there was not any moment where people were like, oh, wait, you know what? He was pretty important and pivotal in this battle. Like, right. maybe we should cut him a little slack. Right, let, let the guy take a mulligan. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it sounds <laughs> um, stupid because, you know, it's a revolution and everything was on the, the, the blade of a knife and life or death. But also, you know, you wouldn't be where you are without this guy. Well, I, you know, there's a few complicating factors there. I think one that we have to keep in mind is that, in all honesty, I mean, name traitors to the United States, uh, unless this is something you're really interested in, most people can't even name one because America somehow, um, you know, we could talk about whether it's just, uh, are we just that great of a country? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know we, we, there are some we, out we there that would say have... that right now. <laughs> right. Um, y- you know, we, we, we just haven't had a lot of traitors in our history. Uh, so it makes those that have betrayed America that much more vile, mm. you know, because they seem to really stand alone. Um, and it's also such a such a pinnacle time, you know, when he betrays uh, America at West Point, which is under his command. You know, and it's obviously it's not the academy that is today. It's it's a fort. He could have undermined the entire revolution then and there. It was that important of a position. Well, it would have basically reversed the whole decision at Saratoga. It would have handed the English control of the St. Lawrence, correct? Yeah. Of well, of, of the or, Hudson. I'm sorry, the Hudson. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. You know, the Hudson's a massive. You know, it, it's a really wide river. The the type that the British Navy is actually able to sail some significant ships yeah. up, and you know the. Um, this fort, it's uh, it's basically what's making sure that you know they're held at bay. That the that the British only have control of New York City and can't go up and essentially pull what Jill and Johnny was was planning on. So yeah, you know it's not just that Benedict Arnold decided to change sides; it's that he decided to change sides and he nearly flipped the entire game at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, so it it makes the sin that much more, you know. Which I I think it uh, it makes sense. You've got kind of got the, uh, I forget who they are the, uh, the Rosensteins or, it was a, a Jewish couple that was spying in the fifties or, or I think they yeah and it I th- yeah that's I right. think it's because of you've got this heightened McCarthy Red Scare, and had they been feeding secrets to any other country. You know, or allegedly, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to make a political or anything. I'm just saying if they had been feeding the whatever they were supposedly feeding to any other country, uh, it might sure. have been less. But since they were feeding it supposedly to the Soviets, it becomes exactly you know, this height. It's so much more egregious. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh-huh. So the, it, it's it's yeah. weird how we kind of have this. Um, or, or maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. But it seems like maybe with. Uh, treason there's kind of a qualifier like who when is the moment that you're being treasonous how effective would your treason have been 
that's how we'll punish you. Yeah, yeah. No, we we definitely take all those things into consideration. I don't think that in the American psyche, maybe I'm wrong, but my perception, uh, treason is not a black and white issue. It's how important were you? How much damage could you have done with your treason? Uh, it's it's more shades. And, you know, Benedict Arnold's not only among the a, a very short list of people who have uh, who betrayed the United States. You know, I mean, short relative to, you know, a country that's over 200 years old. Um, it, but, uh, but his treason was potentially very, very effective. And so does that affect his legacy other than we all know Benedict Arnold, if you're pulling a Benedict Arnold, you're tr- being a traitor, you're changing sides, exactly. you're a turncoat. It, does it affect him in any other way? As, like, as far as Saratoga, do we... Do we recognize his contribution, or is he just like stricken, like some kind of Persian or Egyptian king, like just strike him from the records of history? Well, so he's he's there, and I think in a, in a gr- really fascinating sort of way. Uh, you know, there's a memorial to the battle. Um, I believe it's in Schuylersville, New York, to be specific, and the monument has four sides to it. It has uh, a couple of the major commanders from the battle and uh, I believe Daniel Morgan's one of them Horatio Gates and then there is a spot for a statue of, of one of the leaders and it's just open and blank hmm. so you know it's clearly meant for Benedict it's kind of saying like you know here's a spot we want to acknowledge him but at the same time we're going to remember that bastard's a traitor Jesus that is so goddamn harsh yeah that throughout eternity, right. there's a spot that you could have had. You'll, you'll That's just right. never be there. That is just, and, I mean, it's rightfully harsh, but another, it is still really harsh. Yeah. No, and, and, and there's yet another statue um, for him. It's just his leg. The broken leg, um, the hurt, the, the shot, the, wounded leg. The broken leg. <laughs> yeah, and I can't, I can't remember who it was. Oh, God. But there was at one, at one point, Benedict... Um, I believe was having a conversation with, I don't know if it was a, 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 gosh, I wish I could remember if it was a captured American soldier or what the situation was, but it's after he's betrayed, he's talking to uh, an enlisted, you know, uh, American. And uh, yeah, I think it was in Virginia. If if I recall correctly, Uh, Benedict's later sent down to Virginia towards the end of the war and uh, lays waste to some, some towns and, and so forth. And, um, he asks this American, "What would you, what would you have done if you, you know, if you guys had caught me?" And uh, <laughs> he said, "We could have cut your leg off and celebrated that." <laughs> like, oh my God, I, I friggin' love that. That is so badass, <laughs> and that's one of those great things where, like, you get into a fight with somebody, and then two days later, you're like, "Shit, I should have said that." The, the <laughs> right. fact that some guy thought of that on the moment and was like, "Yeah, this is good. <laughs> I love it. I love it." I know. It's also really uh, telling that that uh, you know, however long after the war, when they built that monument, they were like, "The best part of this guy, the part we're going to memorialize, is the mangled, bleeding, bloody, broken mass of his leg, <laughs> and we'll exactly. we'll keep that you, forever." <laughs> yeah. The 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 part that like symbolically is is the true American that clearly died by the time West Point you know Oof. treason occurred again that is um, some bleak ass shit. 
<laughs> that is well put, my friend. All right, so we, we kind of have a, have a sense of how the battle ended after Saratoga. Yeah. The victory over the British convinces the French. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is able to wheel and deal over there and convince the French that this isn't just a kind of momentary lapse in judgment, that the Americans are serious and they can actually beat a British army in the field without any tricks, without any dash or flair. They can fight a European battle in European style and win it. How uh, how does that actually manifest itself in terms of um, helping the revolution? Does that uh, is that it, obviously it's not immediate? Um, what what happens as far as after the victory? So we get two treaties out of the French. Uh, one is economic. One is military. And the economic treaty basically just hooks us up with awesome trade deals with with the French. So that, of course, is a great boost right there. The military one, amazing. Uh, In it, the French specify that they will not ask for any territory at the end of the war. So that belays concerns that some Americans have that if they, you know, if they ally with the French at the end of the day, they're just going to swap out a British monarch for a French monarch. Um, And it also says that neither country can make peace without the other. So that means the French are not going to, you know, cut and bail on the Americans at some point. So there's some great assurances in there. And it isn't immediate. You're right. Uh, we, we have French soldiers that have already, you know, come over and more are coming. Um, you know, Lafayette is, uh, he, he's in America independent really of, of the treaty. Um, but eventually, we end up with with a sizable French army under uh, Rochambeau, and that is the army that teams up with George Washington and wins it at Yorktown. I mean, half, in fact, actually, if you include the, the French Navy under General de Glasse, there are more French soldiers than there are Americans at Yorktown, which wow. is the decisive wow. battle. You know, that's that, that ends the revolution. That's one of those great little friggin factoids that you would never hear in, a, uh, you know, in a fifth grade history class. No, you wouldn't. I mean, it's so know. important, though, uh, to get a better sense of like the global aspect of the revolution, the effects that it had. But you would n- never, ever in a public school, you'd never, ever hear that. It's George Washington no, basically no. walks up to the French fort at Yorktown or the uh, English fort at Yorktown and knocks on the door and says, "Hey, get out of my country." That's essentially what it boils down to. That's basically, yeah. He walks up with a sweet swagger and I think sunglasses on to do, you know. <laughs> Big swinging yeah. Dick George just walks up and knocks the English <laughs> right out. That's right, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, and that's where. You know, if, I, if we were to talk about the most important battles of the American Revolution, again, I'm sure, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't um, say someone's crazy if they want to rate them differently. But the three most important battles in, um, in in my book, well, maybe I won't go with three. We'll just, we'll just leave it at two. It would be Saratoga and Yorktown, and Yorktown doesn't happen without Saratoga. Huh. So there's a, a certain argument to be made for cause and effect there, where 
Absolutely. You don't find yourself. Those ripple effects are big. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So, and go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, it continues to domino effect because even though Spain will never ally with America, we have too many conflicting interests on the Mississippi River. Yeah, you have to remember that Spain controls, you know, at this point, it controls territory from Canada down to the tip of Chile. I mean, no empire has ever controlled more turf in the Americas and probably, probably never will than the Spanish Oh yeah, at their peak. Uh, so, you know, we have conflicts, uh, conflicting interests on the Mississippi. They won't ally with us straight out, but they will ally with the French to fight the British. So, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter that the Spanish aren't directly allying with us. And then our efforts to just create trade with the Dutch piss the British off. So then they declare war on the Dutch which then brings them into this conflict. Now, it's very minimal. The The Dutch are, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the Dutch are hardly a big power player. But, you know, when, when we're trying to understand how do it, does this ragtag army beat the, you know, greatest superpower on earth? Well, it's because, you know, one, this is a small corner of, of a much bigger British empire than, frankly, uh, the British do have more important colonies than these. But it's also not America versus Britain. It's America, uh, Britain's only real rival in the world, France, uh, another major empire, Spain, and a major economic power, uh, you know, the Dutch, all fighting against Britain. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because if from, again, from the American perspective, it's always like, you know, the the, the revolutionary forces single-handedly swat the superior British forces off the continent. But really what it is, what you're saying, I guess, or what I'm gathering is, it was really England just didn't have its eye on the ball. Like, they were forced by the circumstances created after Saratoga to focus on continental enemies, their trade, potential trade wars, that for England are global, you know, because now you've got to right. protect all your other colonies against the incursion of Spanish fleets, French fleets, Dutch fleets. I mean, the Dutch uh, merchant marine at that time is the second behind England. So you're looking at, you know, a potential not just war with these other countries, but a trade war with the uh, with the Dutch in it's just not as simple as we have freedom and liberty in our country, and that's what won the day. It's kind of a little bit of that and a dash of England couldn't focus all of its attention on just... Actually, like we were saying earlier, if the... If the... Uh, if if um, Gentleman Johnny there, if his plan had worked it would have been focusing the entire might of the British Empire on New England and New York. Essentially. Yeah. And that would have, you know, yeah. that would have squashed out and, and, anything. And, and, <laughs> yep. And instead, when he loses and, and the French come into the picture, well, the very next year, remember how I mentioned General Howe had taken Philadelphia? Yeah. Which, let's talk about the symbolism there. That's where the Continental Congress is meeting. It's the... It, is the de facto capital of colonial America. Uh, I mean, his, you know, that should have been a real blow. His belief at the time, I believe, was that if he captured the place where the 
Continental Congress gathered and freedom was born or whatever, or the, you know, Congress was born, Howe's belief was that that would end the rebellion right there, that just capturing the city would, exactly right. would have the effect of extinguishing the flame of, of, of revolution across the board. And instead, you know, the, the only reason I think it really doesn't, or at least a major reason why it doesn't, is that America is getting, you know, basically a, a psychological high off of Horatio Gates' victory mm. up in New York. And to boot, um, Gates has to bail on Philly as soon as the winter's over. Come that summer, he gives up occupation. Why? Um, well, actually, he, he gets kicked out. We move on to another commander. But um, orders are that a few thousand soldiers who are occupying Philly have to go down to Florida and the Caribbean to protect British interests there from the French oh, man. because of the new alliance. That's... So even when the French aren't in America, you know, just by signing that sheet of paper with Ben Franklin, total game changer. Troops are now, you know, thousands of troops are leaving colonial America to, to go protect more important things like uh, Caribbean colonies. That's, uh, yeah, that's crazy to me. I mean, it, it just so, it's so I, intertwined. Dude, I know. It's so many dominoes, you know, just one after another falling down. It's that down. stupid Ashton Kutcher uh, butterfly effect movie where, like, you know, uh, uh, Johnny Burgoyne <laughs> shat his is. pants somewhere in New York, and that means that the British Empire is fighting a small skirmish in India yeah. with the French for some friggin' reason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's not too far off. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. That was uh, a friggin' awesome hour and eight minutes. Very enlightening. I learned a ton. I'm sure my listeners, your listeners, everybody that listens to this is going to get a hell of a lot out of it. I'm going to leave you with a couple of quick questions that I just find interesting. So the first one that I want to ask okay. you is any time, any place, any period, anywhere in the world, what battle do you think is the most important or decisive to history? doesn't matter what. You, you pick it, and it's totally your call. Shoot. That's, uh, that's an excellent one. Um, okay, I think... I think I'm going to go with if, you know, if, if it really, uh, well, I'll stay out of it, out of antiquity. Um, <laughs> biggest in the, in the world, I might go with the battle of Austerlitz. Okay. I dig it. And, you know, I'm just kind of going off, off the top of my head here, but you know, that ends, uh, the Holy Roman empire. It ceases to exist. Uh, it really solidifies Napoleon's hold, and as Napoleon's influence spreads across Europe, it spreads the ideas of the French Revolution, despite the fact that he's basically crapping on the revolution by making himself an emperor. Um, so, you know, th that dramatically overhauls the, the culture and, and thought process of, of Europe, even if it doesn't stick, uh, you know, in terms of maintaining his empire. So. All right. I there we go. I buy that. I totally, uh, I, I'm excited to eventually get there and dig in on that. But the next question I have is, same question, only this time, it's not about whether or not you think it's the most important or decisive. What battle would you most like to be there to witness? And I don't mean like in that weird, mm -hmm. like, oh, 
I want to see the dirty deeds. But I think most military historians or historians, they have that one battle that they're just like, how the hell did that happen? Like, I, I, I need to see the mechanics of it. How did that work? And I just, I'm, I wonder what battle that is for you. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's Trenton. Trenton. Washington and Trenton. <laughs> yeah. And why is that? What makes you say <laughs> that? Well, th- he pulls one of his midnight crossings that, again, the British are like, you know, that's something people just don't do. Um, that's not something to worry about. Uh, how he's able to get his troops across. There, there are three groups crossing the Trenton that night, or at least three that are supposed to. George has a, a crew uh, north of Trenton. Uh, and then there's two other groups under other leaders beneath him further south on the river both of those groups are not able to cross because of the weather so how the hell is it that george washington manages to cross despite the weather and get you know hundreds of men but these other two guys can't now there can be some local features right but by and large it's the same damn weather and it's the same damn river Uh i want to know and uh you know there's also you know historians we've um, we, we haven't seen evidence for the idea that the Hessians were all drunk um, or hungover when the Americans showed up, but I'd love to just settle that, you know? I just want, like to be able to walk up to a Hessian and be like, hey, I need to smell your breath, man. You know? <laughs> Here, like, blow into put this Put this baby quick. to rest for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good one. That's, that's, so, that's interesting because that's like a, a super small scale uh event in terms of the the numbers and, and size of of the forces involved but it is it's it is one of those weird ones where you're like what the hell how does this happen you know uh, Dude, it looms so it's kind of like exactly. uh, i mean it, 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 it for me it's kind of like rourke's drift like how, how 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 does that happen yeah yeah and you know we'll never fully know all right, man. Uh, last question, real quick. What's your favorite movie? Uh, what's your favorite historical movie? What should we be watching as far as, you know, if, he, if you think it's good or you don't care that it goes away from the history but it's entertaining, what, what is it? What do you think's good? You know, man, I, I know it's a little stereotypical, but Saving Private Ryan. Oh, yeah. Um, Dude, that opening D-Day scene, oh, I mean... Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's... Uh, I mean, it's disturbing to watch, but that is, that is meticulously researched. It's, oh, yeah, I mean... just done brilliantly. It might um, be the single most accurate, like, 15 minutes of historical film, you know, historical fiction put onto film. Exactly. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm not passing myself off for anything that I'm not, but... Um, when I think of the, you know, the, the movies framed with the old Private Ryan, you know, at, at um, the American Cemetery at Normandy, yeah. and uh, I, I've been there, I've been there twice in my life. Um, man, it, it is, it's breathtaking. Um, I, I shed some man tears. Mm. Um, you know, I, obviously, I'm not someone who lived through World no, War II no, but... and is now kneeling in front of, you know, a fallen comrade, but um you know just having even been there i i feel like i get a little more into his head both of my grandfathers were world war ii vets mm. um 
one of them uh, on the front lines of, of Italy. And, you know, he was, uh, I mean, he had a successful life, but, you know, today we'd look at him and be like, oh yeah, you have PTSD. Um, yeah. Back then, uh, you know, they, they called it uh, sucking it up, which is not the appropriate response. <laughs> um, you know, he, he needed more help. But anyhow, you know, it just, it fills me, my grandfathers have filled me with a lot of awe and respect for that generation, for what happened there. And um, I think that it's an important thing for, you know, as as the World War II generation dies out, I, I think it's devastating if we forget the world order we enjoy today mm. comes out of that moment, out of sacrifices like that day. Well, Greg, thank you so much. This has really been fun. Um, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I think. Oh, immensely. Sorry if uh, if I dragged us on too long, man. No, uh, no, no, no. I'm having a blast. I could do this for. I, I'm a I'm a stupid nerd, man. I could do this for hours. So. <laughs> um, thank you again, and uh, and we'll be putting this out soon. Again, that's uh, history that doesn't suck podcast. This is Greg. And uh, and look them up. Uh, what's your social media stuff? Go ahead and slap that on there. Sure. Uh, uh, you know we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you just search history that doesn't suck on any of those platforms, uh, you're you're gonna find us. Cool. And do you have a YouTube channel or anything like that, or any plans for something like that? Well, I'll go ahead and unveil it. We have a YouTube channel uh, set up. It is History That Doesn't Suck. We haven't released anything yet, but we've got some we've got some big things in the works that are going to be dropping in the next few months. So, Very cool. Very cool. We'll keep yes. on the lookout for that. That's exciting. All right, Greg, thank you again, and uh, I'm going to uh, – we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you.